morning. My name's Stephen Bentley. I'm one of the leaders in the church here. We're going to be uh, reading this morning from John's Gospel. And if you've got your Bibles there, uh, it'd be good to follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but whatever version you've got there, you might be able to also follow. And we're looking at chapter 2, starting at verse 13. So that's John chapter 2, starting at verse 13, and we'll be reading to the end of the chapter. And while you're looking for that passage, I think it's great, isn't it, to see someone wanting to serve the Lord and go out and serve him in mission uh, overseas. But of course we're also called to be on mission here. It's not just about overseas mission. And so I think as we read this passage and as we consider what God might be saying to us this morning, that we might be effective on mission wherever we're called to be. So that's John chapter 2 starting at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So don't imagine they're too happy about this. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he, he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Well, good morning, church. Um, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Mike. I'm just a really small part of the teaching team here at Canterbury Gardens. Okay, I'll check my mic. It is on. Yes? No? Yes. Great. My name is Mike. I'm part of the teaching team here at Canterbury Gardens. In, in our work situation, the place where I work, we're in the middle of um, doing a, a number of job interviews as we look for staff with a particular skill set. And one of the things that anyone who has hired people before has probably noticed um, is that what's written in a CV, the things that people write down in their resumes... Um, 
don't always align with their actual abilities. I don't think it's that people seek to be dishonest deliberately, uh, but it is common for a bit of mayonnaise to be added, as it were. It's common for us uh, to bump up what abilities or experiences we might have in order to impress a prospective employer. I wonder what would happen this morning if in the conversations that we have with people uh, after church, um, we ask them to prove that they can do the things they claim to be able with. We have a conversation with someone, someone says, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I'm a rocket scientist. If we ask them, well, can you prove to us that you are who you claim to be, that you can do the things you claim? If you were to turn to someone now as you look around and ask that very question, what response might you get? As I was thinking about this during the week, I confess that my imagination ran away with me a little. Um, So if you are one of the professions I'm about to mention, please remember I'm taking some artistic license. Please don't take it personal. And as I was thinking, I thought, what would the builders or trades say if we were to say to them, prove that you can do the things you say you can Perhaps they would say, go and see what I've built. Go and see what I've made. It's really common these days for for tradies especially to have pictures on their phones of the stuff they're working on, the things they've done lately. The medical professional could detail their latest challenging patient. They could regale us with details of anatomy or how drugs work. Or maybe they could diagnose that mystery illness that we've put up with for so long. The teachers among us could tell us about the school they teach at, what year level or classes they're teaching. They could certainly tell us about the challenging students they have in their class because they always seem to remember or learn their names first. The lawyers amongst us could start speaking in legal terms only they understand. Or I don't know, if they got a bit frustrated with whether we really believed them or not, maybe they could threaten us with an injunction of some sort. The police could show us their badge. I'm not sure they're allowed to show guns. I'm not sure they're allowed to do that, but they could certainly show us their badge. The truck or bus driver driver could hop in a big rig and show us how they can control it, how they can back. In our workplace, we have big B-doubles back into our workshop. And we know those, you can quickly tell those drivers that have a skill set and those that struggle. The uni students might be able to share about how busy they are about their study load, or perhaps they might share with us what they're going to do in their next big, long break. The engineers amongst us might bore us with so much detail about their work that we'd be forced to concede just in order to move on and talk about something else. I feel I can talk about that because that's a scene I'm working in. The stay-at-home parent could simply say, you just come and spend the day with me. And then you'll know what I do. The pastors could show us their diaries, their days and nights spent in ministry. You see, my point is that if you are asked to substantiate why you're capable or skilled in a particular task, and you think that simply pointing to a degree, an apprenticeship, or some other training you've undertaken is enough to verify that you have the skills to fulfill a particular role then you're mistaken. The degree hanging on your wall says you've completed your studies. Telling someone what my job is doesn't speak 
as to whether I'm actually any good at it. But there's often a, a word placed in many job advertisements these days that points to having more than a piece of paper to prove that you're able, that you're qualified to fulfill a particular role. And that word is the word demonstrate or demonstrated. Unless you're just starting out your working life, employers want to more than a piece of paper. They want some proof, some concrete examples of how you've taken what you claim to know and seen it worked out in practice. If you're applying for a leadership role, they want to know how your leadership skills have helped to build up a team. If you're applying for a sales role, they want to know how your sales um, has made an impact to the bottom line of the companies that you've previously worked with. If you're taking on a hands-on trades or other role, they want to know how your skill set has been used to build the company up. In the section of John we have before us today, Jesus is asked in essence, who are you to do what you've done? Demonstrate for us what right you have to do the things that we've witnessed. And Jesus answers this question, though, as with many of the questions he's asked throughout our readings of the gospel, his answer isn't what the people are expecting. We'll see this morning that there are three things John points to that demonstrate that Jesus has every right to do what must have caused an incredible stir throughout Jerusalem. Make no mistake, this, this uh, cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem had a big impact throughout the city. But before we actually get into the text and explore it, I want to set the scene. It's really important when we come to narrative that we understand the setting, what's going on, so that we can better, better appreciate what God is trying to say to us. We know because the text tells us it's a Passover. It's the first of three Passovers mentioned in the Gospel and it's followed directly after by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In conjunction with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this becomes a week-long celebration. Jewish historians tell us that during this week, Jerusalem is packed to the rafters. There are people camping on nearby hillsides. In towns close by, they're packed out too. All so that people can be a part of this significant occasion. The city has expanded its population by perhaps tenfold or even more. If we were there to witness, we would see a massive humanity. All the hotels are full. The traders are making the most of their most profitable time of the year. Family and friends are reunited and there is this expectation by the people as they're where they can attend the most, their most sacred site, the temple. The practicalities of travelling with animals meant it was also far more expedient to purchase a suitable animal sacrifice once they arrived. I mean, who wants to drag a... Uh, an oxen with you all the way from some outlying region to get to Jerusalem only perhaps to have the, the priest turn around and say, well, your animal's not acceptable. It's not a good enough sacrifice. It's, got, it's blemished. And so you'd have to go and purchase one anyway. This also allowed a thriving marketplace for those who traded in those things, in animals for sacrifice. But it was also a time when it was customary for all adult males to pay a temple tax. The proceeds of this tax went towards the general upkeep and provision, provision of the temple and its surrounds. 
But there were only two kinds of currency that were accepted due to the poor quality of some of the currencies from the outlying regions that the uh, people came from. And so it was necessary for money changers to offer a service of currency exchange. It's just like when we go overseas, we understand our currency doesn't hold much weight in many other countries. We need to make sure we've got the right currency if we're going to pay for things in cash. Now, unfortunately, the propensity for man to pervert the best of intentions resulted in people getting wealthy by extorting exorbitant prices for both the animals people's purchase for sacrifice and the fees that they were charged by the money changers in converting the currency for all those who needed to do so. And there can be no doubt that the Jewish leaders, the Jewish hierarchy, were also given their share of this dishonest gouging in that it was permitted within the temple grounds itself. I mean, it would be kind of like us allowing pop-up shops to line the doors out the front as people came and went from church. For us to go around to the local traders and say, come and, come and start to open a pop-up shop out the front of church. People will walk past, they're likely to buy stuff, but more than that, um, when we speak to them on Sunday morning, we'll encourage them to purchase stuff from you. We'll get you some business. Oh, and by the way, make sure some of that business comes back to us. The temple that we read about in our text is not the first temple that Solomon built. Uh, That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And it wasn't even the second temple that's recorded as being built in the Bible by the Babylonian captives as they came back. That was destroyed by the Romans under Titus. This is known as Herod's temple. It is a temple that was started by Herod, not so much to encourage Israel's worship, but as an attempt to placate and control the Jews. Construction began in 19 BC and continued for 46 years, right up until this temple cleansing takes place. And while it was largely completed at this time, it was actually not totally finished until six, six years before it was totally destroyed, again by the Romans in 70 AD. What's significant is that when the first temple Solomon completed was dedicated, we read in 1 Kings chapter 8 that it was called a place for the Lord to dwell in forever. It was not that God was restricted to the temple only, but it became known as the place to go in order to meet with to commune with your God. And with all this in mind, we come to Jesus entering the temple as his public ministry takes hold here in John's Gospel. Now, just as a side, those of you who are familiar with your Bible will be aware that the Synoptic Gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke record a temple cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry, just before his crucifixion. So the question is, How is it that John records a temple cleansing at the beginning, right at the start of Jesus' public ministry? Is John referring to the same occurrence? As his memory somehow faded, John was by far the last of the Gospels written. He was was old when this was written. Perhaps his memory had failed him. And yet, if, if we think that that's the case, then it's difficult to equate that with the fact that All scripture is God-breathed. 
I believe that a close look at the other gospel accounts reveals that there is a considerable difference in the events as recorded. Jesus doesn't quote scripture in John, he does with the other gospels. No other gospel mentions the disciples remembering Psalm 69. The whip is only mentioned here in John's gospel. Here in John's gospel, Jesus is stirred to religious zeal for the right use of God's house. And it's entirely expected that a corrupt religious leadership would fall back into its old routine in allowing the temple to again be dishonoured a few years after the initial cleansing seen here in John. So firstly, as, as John shows us who Jesus is, he points to Jesus' authority on display in verses 13 to, to 18. Jesus enters the temple grounds and he's immediately assailed with the sound of bleeding sheep, the smell of animal waste, the hustle and bustle of commerce of deals being made, money changing hands and the full realisation that traders are growing rich off the general population as they, the people, seek to meet their religious duty. And all this in the only open area that could possibly afford such space, the outer court of the Gentiles. The outer court of the Gentiles was the largest section of the temple. It surrounded the temple on three sides. It was an open area. If you went a little further into the temple, you went to the court that the women worshipped. Then you went on to the court where the men who were ceremonially clean worshipped. And then you went into an area where only the high priests went. It's where the sacrifices took place. And finally, you would go to the Holy of Holies. That place where only the high priests entered and that only once a year. It was the curtain that separated the Holy, and Holy, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple that was torn in two from top to bottom at the crucifixion. But it's upon entering the temple precinct, the court of the Gentiles, that only area large enough to support the trade of the many animals that were going on at this time, that Jesus is confronted with a scene that led to his righteous indignation. In zeal, he makes a whip of cords and drives the animals and their keepers out, upturning the tables of the money changers, proclaiming this is his father's house. And as he's doing this, as there's all this stuff going on, animals are being shooed away. People are trying to pick up the coins off the ground. All people are standing around wondering what in the world's going on. It's at this point that the disciples are looking on at all of this. And they're reminded of the words of Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is a psalm of David. It's a prayer for his deliverance. It speaks of David's imminent danger due to the enemies of God who hate him for his devotion to God and those who thus seek to put him to death. Later portions of this psalm depicts events that occur at the crucifixion of our Lord. This psalm points to the Messiah's sacrificial death due to his zeal for pure worship. Now, it's important to note that this zeal doesn't relate so much to a, to a building, but what it represents for the people. We know from the rest of our reading through the Gospels that religious leaders were, for the most part, blind, jealous, rebellious, hard-hearted, covetous. They were self-absorbed legalists who expected the people to follow as doctrines of God the mere thoughts of man. 
Jesus describes them as hypocrites, not willing or able to live the standards they expected of others. But the temple was meant to draw people's hearts and minds toward God, yet it, has become, it had become a house of trade. Too bad for the Gentile who wanted to come and worship. There was nowhere for them to go. God had always provided means for those outside of the Jewish race to come to him by faith. And here as Jesus enters, there's no place for the Gentile. It's a house of commerce. This seal points to the authority Jesus has to set in order what was going on in his father's house. But the authorities have actually totally missed the pointers. And so they ask, in essence, they ask, demonstrate what gives you the right. The action of Jesus cleansing the temple and the reasons for his zealousness begs a question to us all. What things might might we put in the way of people hearing our message? What constraints do we place on people seeing the light, being transformed by the word, as John calls Jesus? We don't have a physical temple, a building that we bring people to in order to meet with God. But what impediments do we put in the way of those around us hearing the message of the gospel? Is it the way we live? The things we say or do, are they distinct from those around us? Do we share the world's cynicism? Are our attitudes to family relationships the same? I mean, I remember when our, kid, our, our kids were just small babies in our arms, people would say, wait till you get to the toddler years. And then our kids got to the toddler years and they said, yeah, but you wait until a few more years' time when they're out of that cute toddler stage. And then later on they would say, oh, wait until your kids are teenagers. Now, we all understand parenting is a challenge in any season of life. But I want to testify that after five kids, they are a blessing. God has caused them them to be a blessing. Is our quest for material gain indistinguishable from what we see in society? Are we selfish, bitter, unforgiving, gossips or loaded with any number of other character traits that cause others to ask in their heart, why would I want to be like you? You talk about Jesus, but it doesn't seem to be very different from what all my friends are like. Right now, is there something in you that if you're honest with yourself... Jesus would want to put right. Jesus would want to cleanse. Put right so that the true witness of God's glory could be reflected in you. It's not a task you have to do alone. Jesus asked that we open our hearts to him, to allow him to do the work. Now, you'll notice the authorities were not questioning what Jesus had done. The issue was not what he had done. The issue was who had done it. No one could stand up or argue whether this was right. No one debated the merits of cleansing the temple. No one sought to arrest him for the disruption he was causing because deep down, everyone present knew it was the right thing to do. Instead, the question comes, who are you to do this? Prove you have the authority. It's a sign they want. Yet the very question belies an inability to recognise 
the fulfillment of Scripture that we see here, to recognize the divine authority required to do and say what he did without any fear of arrest. There was no violence. There was no people standing up against him. Jesus is clearly in command of the situation. So the Jews asked for a sign. If Jesus is acting on God's behalf, they reason, it's impossible that they yet grasp that he's acting as God himself. Then let him establish his credentials by an exercise of divine power. That's what they want to see. If he's acting with God's authority, let him perform a sign to prove it. In effect, put up or shut up. They've thrown down the gauntlet and it's now Jesus' turn to respond. Verses 19 to 22, we see Jesus with power in complete control. And he answers in verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Now, as you might expect, this leads to confusion that, if we're honest we would say is not unreasonable at the time. Unlike the act of cleansing the temple, no one present understood what Jesus was saying. So for me, the question arises, why? Why is this Jesus' response to what the authorities asked? Why not just give them what they wanted? They wanted a sign, why not just give it to them? Why not just do something? You know, few people who saw the signs and wonders performed by Jesus were able to look beyond the actual sign and see their real significance. His miracles were not performed to try and impress anyone. I mean, seriously, if Jesus wanted to impress people, he could have set himself up on the Temple Mount and left everyone in awe and wonder with what he did, if that was his goal. You know, history tells us that even this wouldn't be sufficient to produce the true life-changing faith that God desires. I mean, look back in the Old Testament at what God did through the likes of Moses, of Noah, of Abraham, of David. We've just finished a series in the Judges and time and time again we see God miraculously rescue his people and yet what happens? Before long, the people start following other gods again. Seeing God's miraculous power, wondering at it, does not constitute the faith that Jesus calls for. The miraculous signs and wonders Jesus performed were a means to an end, to reveal something about himself or to teach us something that is of real significance. I mean, how often do you remember in the Gospels Jesus being asked to perform a sign and he simply goes and does it? So back to the question, why? Why didn't he not not just perform a sign. Well, John tells us in verse 22, and he reveals that Jesus has another another agenda. Read with me in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. After the resurrections, the disciples have an epiphany of sorts. They remembered what had transpired. They remembered Jesus' words and they believed. You remember that we've talked about John 20, 30 and 31 where John provides a little um, snapshot of what he's trying to accomplish in the gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs 
that are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you'll have life in his name. The goal of Jesus' ministry was to see people transformed, not amazed. If you want to be amazed, just go to any magic show. Jesus seeks followers who are renewed, those who believe in who he is, what he says, and what he has come to do. Now, this, this statement by Jesus also so early in his ministry is a subtle reminder to us all that there is nothing that takes place in the ministry of Jesus that takes him by surprise. He knew his mission, he knew what it was, and he committed himself to carry it out steadfastly, regardless of the cost. We see his unquestioned authority is displayed, his proclaimed power over death itself is foretold, and verses 23 to 25 point to a knowledge that is, in many respects, beyond comprehension. We are told there in verse 23 that Jesus does perform other signs during the Passover celebrations. But John doesn't mention what they are. Instead, John wants us to understand a fundamental truth that will help the readers to more fully understand the wonder of who this Jesus really is. We know from what John and the other gospel writers tell us that these signs led to a belief of sorts, one that lasted while their interest was piqued while their needs were met or while Jesus confirmed to who, conformed to who they wanted him to be. Yet, where were they at his trial and crucifixion? Were they among the ones who shouted, crucify him, crucify him? Jesus knows the fickle, unstable, selfish heart of man yet still despite knowing what we're really like he paid the price for our sin so that he could gift us what we could not attain Jesus on his part in verse 24 did not trust himself to them because he knew all people as I've been thinking about this passage, there's a verse that has gone uh, over and over in my mind. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin took our sin upon himself so that we would take on our righteousness and stand justified before a holy, righteous God. Is that not an incredible concept? Is that an incredible thing to acknowledge, to believe in? That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus knows the heart of man. He was not looking for, nor did he require man's approval. He sought those who would believe in the message of the gospel. Even those who followed or tried to cajole him into doing what they wanted did not sway his message the purpose for which he came. Mere words of praise, backslapping or expressions of honour did not sway his mission. And you know what? Knowing, Jesus knowing the heart of man means we're all exposed. Means no one's hidden from God's sight. Hebrews 4.13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows each of us. He knows the darkest recesses of our hearts. Those places that we would prefer no one to ever find out about. He knows. They're open to him. It's like a book to him. And yet still, he goes to Calvary. Still, he pays our price so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you'll notice that these verses form a kind of bridge between what has transpired in the cleansing of the temple and the many and various conversations that Jesus is about to have with a few different characters through John. Look at verse 25 there. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now, therefore, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And he goes on to talk about it. Now, bear in mind there are no, there are no chapter or verse breaks in the, in the scroll that John wrote. We'll see more of that in the weeks to come. But remember these words as we journey through Jesus' interactions with various people. Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man. As we look at Jesus interacting with different characters, remember these words. Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man. So in conclusion, can I ask, do you get it? Do you know who this Jesus is? Who it is that has the authority to cleanse the temple, who has ultimate power over what no one can escape, death itself, Who is it that knows the true heart of each of us, yet still loves us enough to give his own life in our place? It's God incarnate. Who else? Jesus here proclaims his deity. It's God. Come to live as a man. For our sakes. Jesus lays out his credentials. Can I ask... Will you believe? Only if you see a sign. Jesus himself says you're blessed if you believe without requiring such because this is born of true faith. If you say you'll only believe if, if God does something for you, perhaps he heals you, gives you security, a job you like, if he gives you the grades you desire or the health you long for, the spouse that you'd really like, if he gives you wealth that you think will make you happy or any of the other desires that you secretly have within. If you think that that's going to cause you to find fulfillment, if you think that that's going to cause you to follow after God, then you're mistaken. Of course he can turn water into wine. We saw that last week. He can heal the sick. He can walk on water. He can feed multitudes. He can even raise the dead. But despite seeing these things, there were few people truly transformed because of their hardness of heart. Matthew chapter 12, uh, a a group of people come to Jesus, uh, a crowd of people and also the religious leaders, and they ask him for a sign. Show us a sign to confirm that you're who you're starting to reveal yourself as. 
And Jesus answers them in Matthew chapter 12. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Once again, he could have just done something super amazing to impress them. Instead, he points them to what he's about to do, that they would come by faith. He goes on after that and he says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something that greater than Jonah is here. Jesus Christ died, was buried and rose again on the third day. He asks us by faith to accept him into our hearts and lives. I really like what Matt reminded of us last week. There is no greater miracle than to see a life transformed from darkness into light. We mix with living examples of God's handiwork constantly. We come to church on Sunday morning and we live with examples of God's powerful, miraculous, life-changing encounter with people. And so often it just becomes, bah, you know, <laughs> just seeing the same people. We don't actually see it for what it is. Jesus seeks those who come by faith, not those who follow for the next miracle fix, as if he's somehow our own personal genie. Jesus didn't come to impress us, but to transform us. He's not looking for consumers, he's looking for disciples. And this comes by believing. He will never conform to the desires of what man wants him to be, but if you come to him by faith, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't really believe that we, we will be able to even remotely appreciate what we have in Christ until we see him in glory. This life just becomes so busy. There's so much stuff going on. Someday we will see him as he is and then we'll truly appreciate what we owe. Fellow Christian, is there anything in our lives the Lord would want us to put in order, the Lord would want us to lay bare before him that he can cleanse us of? Are there any roadblocks to those around us seeing the wonders of the gospel as Jesus Christ is reflected in our lives? If you were asked to prove your bona fides, what would you say? What qualifies you to be a Christian? If your answer is anything other than faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, then you lack the skill set to fulfill the role that God calls you to be, a child of God. He made him who knew no sin to take on our sin so that we would take on the righteousness of Christ and be found accepted before a holy, righteous God.